Amen. Thank you, Dan. Morning. Morning. I'm in preaching mode now, not prophesying mode. They're probably not that different, actually. (laughs) Um, For those of you that don't know me, I'm whistling. Do I need to move anything? No? We're all good. Um, For those of you that don't know me, I'm Deborah. I'm on the team here at Central Vineyard, and um, it's always a real privilege to come and stand before you on a Sunday morning. (coughs) Excuse me. As Dan said, we're going to, this morning, finish our series on practicing the way looking at Sabbath. And so far, we've heard Dan has talked about stop, which is really important. Michelle has spoken about rest, and last week, Pete spoke to us about delight, Um, If you missed any of those talks, it's quite a short series, I would commend you to go back and have a listen. You'll find them on our website or wherever you pick up your podcast, so Spotify, I don't know all the different platforms, and it's not the BBC, so I don't have to name them all, but they're on the website and you can have a listen. All of those three practices are really good practices, and without them I would suggest we're probably not keeping the Sabbath But there's one more I want to talk about today, which will elevate your Sabbath to a real holy day, and that's worship. Before we get into it, I'm going to pray myself, though. Um, So, God, I want to thank you for your presence here this morning, and I pray that my words would be of you and they would be fruitful. And anything that's not of you or serves to be a distraction, Lord, I pray it would fall away to nothing. I ask this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. So it's always good to anchor our teaching in Scripture I'm going to go this way a little bit. I'm worried about whistling. Um, it's always good to anchor our teaching in Scripture, and I've got two readings this morning, so I encourage you to open your Bible app or your Bible. I would suggest getting one from out the back, but they're New Testaments, and our readings are in the Old Testament this morning, so they're not going to help you. They are going to come up on the screen behind me, though. So our first reading is in Genesis 1 and 2. We read that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And our second reading is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I wonder what a typical Sunday looks like for most people. In our cultural context, it might look a bit like this. We stay up late on a Saturday. Either we're watching a film or we've gone out with friends. We might sleep in a little bit on a Sunday, then have a mad rush to get to church if church is what we do, granted in our culture Not many people find themselves dashing to church on a Sunday. We're amongst the few in here. And then we might leave church, or we might go to lunch with friends. We might catch up with some sport. We might do some preparation. We might catch up on work that's undone the week before, get ready for a busy week we've got coming up. Not looking at Martin. He never does that on a Sunday. There might be some other preparation that happens, meal prep, calendar prep, diary prep. All kinds of things can 
actually come into our Sundays, and then we find it Sunday evening, we sit down, we watch something on the TV, fall into bed, ready to get up on Monday and start again. And I feel exhausted just describing a typical Sunday like that. <clears throat> it's not really a Sabbath, though, is it? That's a Western Sunday with church attendance if you're going to church. I think Pete called it last week what Eugene Peterson calls the bastard Sabbath, which is the illegitimate offspring of the spiritual discipline of practicing Sabbath. It becomes a kind of secularized there for a weekend because in our cultural context, we've lost imagination for Sabbath. Our imagination for what Sabbath is becomes diminished because our culture creeps in and steals it from us. It becomes more sabbish than Sabbath. I can't tell you, by the way, how many weird words we've said in this city. Shabbat day has taken hold in our house, <laughs> seriously. So I offer you sabbish. Sabbish for when your Sabbath isn't quite a Sabbath, but it kind of looks like it, but it's more sabbish than Sabbath. So I want to talk about how Sabbath isn't just a day to stop and turn your phone off, or to sleep in a bit and have a rest, or to delight and do a little bit of pleasure stacking, but how today I want to talk about the ultimate aim of Sabbath is to worship God. And I'm hoping nobody's hearts have dropped and thinking, oh, Deborah, you've just ruined the series for me. So in Genesis 1, God blessed the day and he made it holy. God made a day holy. The first thing he did to make holy was a day. Not a temple, not a mountain, not a space in geography, but a day. Time. God made time holy. God made a cathedral not out of brick and glass and wood, but out of time. And in his book, The Sabbath, Abraham Joshua Heschel described it thus. He said... It is not in space, but in time, that we find God's likeness. And I just, I need to give a nod to Pete. I don't even know if he's in the room, but he introduced me to this book, The Sabbath, in our last series, Beautiful Resistance. And, and it's, I commend it to you. It's an amazing read. And I don't want to be a distraction, but it really opened my eyes to keeping the Sabbath. It is in space, not in time, that we find God's likeness. So if God made a day holy, not a location or a space, what does that mean? And before I go too much further, what I want to do is just look at the word holy with us. We can take the word holy to be a really moral word, can't we? We can think that holy means good, and not holy is bad. And the word holy certainly does have moral overtones like that, but the Hebrew word that we come across here in Genesis and throughout the rest of the Old Testament is actually kadash. And that means unique or special or uncommon. To apply a more theological meaning to Kadash, we mean set apart or dedicated to. And for the language nerds among us, when we see Kadash in the Hebrew, it's used as a preposition. So it's set apart or dedicated to the Lord. God set apart or de dedicated the seventh day to the Lord to make it holy. So I want to subtly reframe the way you think of the word holy and not think of holy as good and not holy as bad. In the Torah, there are holy utensils. Um, I don't think utensils can be good or bad in and of themselves, but they can have a common or a, un or a common or everyday purpose or a unique or a set-apart purpose. And just so that you can stick with me, when I'm thirsty in my house... I have, have a choice. 
In our front room is a beautiful cabinet full of crystal ware that a wonderful relative bought for us when we got married. It is the full re beautiful red wine glasses, white wine glasses, brandy gla glasses we're probably never going to use because they were very generous and bought the full set of this beautiful crystal. But when I'm thirsty, I don't go to this cabinet. I go to the kitchen in the cupboard where I've got my everyday glassware that I don't mind if it's got a bit of squash in it or a bit of juice gets left in the bottom and it's on the side and it gets a bit crusty. I just stick it in the dishwasher. The crystalware comes out on very special occasions. It is unique. It is set apart for Christmas Day and Mother's Day, perhaps, if I'm feeling generous. And I'm okay with that because that's its intent. It's, it's supposed to, to demonstrate that we're celebrating a special occasion in our house. For most of the time, the glassware that we use is no less special or no less loved, but it's common and it's everyday glassware. And so when we think about holy, it's set apart for a specific purpose, for a unique purpose, dedicated for a specific use. And so the Sabbath day is to the rest of the week what my crystal glassware is to my everyday glasses. And hopefully that will help that distinction around the meaning of the word holy. I want to stick with this idea of holy for a little bit longer, and I want to talk about this holy day, this dedicated day, as an exchange. We want to talk about keeping the Sabbath. Yes, we're encouraged to practice, because you can't just go straight into keeping the Sabbath, and I've nailed it, and I'm absolutely... Shabbat today is happening. Sabbath is happening. The words in Exodus 20 tell us to keep the Sabbath holy, like a treasure like something we're watching over, like something that's really precious to us. But when we talk about holy, when we talk about having a holy day, that word can be really loaded, can have connotations with legalism. It can be tempting to tick boxes or focus on external factors in order to meet some criteria that add up to holy or holiness. So I want to think of Sabbath, our keeping a day holy as an exchange, where for six days of the week, God makes space in creation for us to exercise our will, for us to go out to work, to toil with his creation, to be who we are. And then on the seventh day, he invites us to make space for him, for him to come in and be who he is to us. On that seventh day, we make space for God and acknowledge that we're his creation. So for six days, we're going to wrestle with everyday life. It's a bit of a toil, isn't it? for six days a week. We toil and we, we want to wring profit from our endeavours. And we have moments of superb joy, or if you've had a week like I've had or John's had, you have moments of, this is hard, moments of disappointment. And then on the seventh day, we just get to call a truce on all that those six days have hold. Put our hands up and say, today, just for today, for one day, all of that stops and I'm just going to come to God and I'm just going to reorient my life back from that busyness, back from that toil, back from the joys of all that life holds and all the disappointments that life holds. And I'm just going to reorient back to me and God. Just going to spend that time with God. I'm going to have a holy day. I'm going to have it dedicated to God. Now, you might be thinking, do you know, Deborah, shouldn't all days, if we're following Christ, shouldn't all days be holy? And I want to say, yes, they should. I've been a Christian. I'm not going to count up the years because of maths I don't want to do. But um, I've never managed to have all holy days. 
We're called to a life of holiness, but when life is busy and hectic and we spend most of it doing what I've described with that, you know, work and busy life and teenagers and families and parents and pets and running the house and dealing with a nail in the tire in the car, that was last week, not this week, then if we're ever reading holy, then nothing ends up being holy because it gets lost in the busyness. If we call every day holy, then surely none of our days will be holy unless we make a distinction, <clears throat> unless we draw a boundary and mark and set aside some time for the purposes of God. And then once we've drawn that boundary, we're invited to spend that time differently, to be reoriented, to grow in our holiness. <clears throat> Excuse me. Without drawing that distinction, I don't know how we're going to achieve seven days of holiness if we don't take part in that exchange where we make space for God. And when we think about that invitation to exchange, we find not only rest, but an invitation to express our trust in God, in calling off the busyness, in calling off the wrestle. We get to say, I trust you, God. I trust that there is a creator. It's not me. I am not the boss. You might be the boss six days a week. But for one day a week, you get to put your hands up and say, it's not me, I'm not in charge, and I trust you. This is God's creation. I trust you with my life, with my schedule, with my body, with my everything. I'm going to keep the Sabbath, and I'm going to trust you to be God. When I talk about trust, for some people, the idea of trusting can be a really, really tough one um, to get their head around, and I think I've spoken about that previous times when I stood up here. So I want to offer a definition of trusting God this morning that might be helpful. Trust is the imprint left by experience. You can't trust something you don't have any experience of. So trust is the imprint left by experience. For some people, trusting God needs to start really, really small. So I want to ask a question, where are the invitations to start really small? to take some really, really small steps to begin to grow your trust. Maybe the question for you this morning is, what can I trust God for next? Because if we don't have enough experience with God to trust him, then those tiny steps of faith are ways to create space for God to imprint on you that you can trust him. It might be that you only have 30 minutes where you can say, I'm going to pause for 30 minutes and trust God for this 30 minutes. And over time, that is going to grow and increase your capacity for trust. And as Pete said last week, it doesn't mean that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. Trusting God doesn't mean your life is always going to be good. But whatever you face, he will be with you and you can endure it. So how are we going to do this then? Uh, you know, you might be sitting here this morning and we're at the end of the series and you might be thinking, I don't think I'm really keeping the Sabbath. And I don't really know how to start. Dan and Pete have shared about the way their Sabbaths look. And I want to touch on how we get from not keeping the Sabbath to a place where we can talk more freely about keeping the Sabbath in the way that the others who stood here. I want to share a couple of words. And the first word is habits, and the second word is rituals. Okay. I don't mean empty habits. Like I've got a really bad habit. If you put a bar of dairy milk in front of me when I've got a film on. I'm going to eat that dairy milk without thinking about it. It's just it's a true story. I don't mean a mindless habit. When I talk about habits and rituals, what I mean is 
where we are ensuring that we're starting something until it becomes something we don't have to think about. Um, Pete, I'm talking about Pete a lot today. Pete and I get on quite well. We're very similar personality types, and sometimes we find that we're having chats about what it's like to be an introverted Christian on a star team of a large church. Um, Pete's written a booklet of prayers that can help you create a ritual to start your Sabbath. I really encourage you to get one of these. They're out on the landing. It's not a mindless ritual. It's a ritual that helps you switch gears out of your six days and into your Sabbath time. And then it becomes a habit. And then it becomes something that you haven't got to think, am I going to? It's something that becomes, I am going to. In a world where there are so many agendas, so many places to be, our families will experience social entropy. That's some nice big words. That means bit by bit we're going to become less connected. That's all social entropy is. We all end up living to a rhythm of life, but it's up to us whether we choose it. And the rhythm of life that the world will put on us if we don't choose it is one of busyness and social entropy. So it's up to us to make rituals or habits that bring together our family, that bring together mealtimes around the table, that bring together playing, that bring together withdrawing, maybe going for a walk together, whatever they might be that work for you. But let's choose a, a rule of life, a rhythm, habits and rituals that say busyness and social entropy will not be how I'm going to live. Sometimes it can be tempting to respond to the invitation to Sabbath with, I can't do that, it's just too busy. You don't understand, there's too much going on in my life. And I want to invite you this morning to pause and just today have a think about where can you start a habit of setting aside time in your diary that says, this time will be holy time. It doesn't have to be the full 24 hours. This time will be set apart time for me and whatever my family looks like to be with God. If we don't do it for ourselves, someone else is going to do that. And again, those habits and those rituals are another way of building trust. It's another way of saying, I'll establish a routine so that my feelings don't come in and say, I don't feel like it today. It's another way of saying, I've put that time aside so the fickleness of my feelings can't dictate that I'm not going to do what I intended to do. It's a way of saying, expressing trust and saying, this is what I'm here for, this is what I'm going to do, this is what we're about. And you might be thinking, do you know what, Deborah, it's really easy for you to stand up there and talk about doing all of these things. And so I want to introduce a concept from a theologian called Thomas of Aquinas. Have a little Google, he's quite an interesting chap. It's the concept of arduous good. Arduous good is a good that requires work. It's worth fighting for. Running a marathon is good, but it's arduous. Running half a marathon is good, but it's arduous. Running 10K for some people is good, but arduous. Riding your bike for long distance is good, but it's arduous. Dancing well for a long period of time is good, but it's arduous. I'm kind of laboring the point about arduous. Good, but our cultural frame of reference, again, pushes back on the idea of arduous good. Our cultural frame of reference says if something is good, then it shouldn't feel hard or difficult. Our cultural frame of reference says if something feels 
hard or difficult, then it can't be good. And if something is good, it shouldn't feel hard or difficult. But the Christian life isn't a call to easiness, is it? It's a narrow way. It's a hard way. Sometimes it won't feel like running a marathon. Sometimes it's more like shifting a piano, which is just a grind. It's just arduous. But the reality is, when we do it with Jesus, he will help us hold intention, the good, the joy, the arduous, the piano moving, the just hanging on. He helps us to hold that all intention when we do it with Jesus. And when we talk about holding that intention with Jesus, when we say, that's okay, I know it's going to be arduous and good, and sometimes it's just going to be hard. When we do that, highlights another of the big cultural lies that we're at risk of internalizing. The authenticity movement, the one that says you've got to be true to yourself, the implication of which says, if something doesn't feel like something you want, then it's not authentic, and therefore it's oppressive. So if it doesn't feel like something you want, don't do it. There's this myth that we don't do something if we don't feel like it in the moment. And I just want to talk about rituals and habits. Um, when I talk about my life is a bit fraught, I lost my mum just before Christmas. And she was taken into hospital, and on the Wednesday, the consultant, it was just me and her, I'm one of four, the consultant came to see me and he said, Deborah, I'm not going to be able to make your mum any better. She's not going to leave hospital, and we need to talk about that. And being one of four, I immediately said, all four of us need to be part of this conversation. I went home, we need to have a conversation, consultant wants to talk about my mum's end of life. Horrible, 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 no matter what your relationship is, nobody wants to have that conversation. So on the Thursday morning, my ritual and habit is to start my day with Bible reading and prayer. So I don't want to talk about my mum's end of life. I don't want to necessarily in that moment say, God, you are good. However, my ritual and my habit is I sat on the end of my bed and I said, God, I know you are good. God, I know you are with me. Because that's my ritual and my habit. And it stopped the fickleness of my feelings of, God, this is awful. Taking me away from orienting myself before God before I left the house. I'm not telling you that to be holy. I'm telling you that when the rubber hits the road in those hard moments, those rituals and habits will reorient you back before God. They're not empty rituals. They're not habits. As followers of Christ, we are to be more careful than the cultural lie of, if I don't feel like it, then it's not good for me and I don't have to do it. We are called to be more careful than that. We're, we're invited to identify what matters, ground that and center it, and then build a life architecture. Build those rituals, build those habits, build those spiritual disciplines around it. So that when it's time to keep the Sabbath, which is what we're talking about today, regardless of whether we feel like it or not, regardless of how busy life is, we can transition out of those six days and into our holy time. And then we can meet that deep ache for God that we carry 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's where we're going to meet that deep ache on the Sabbath. One of the risks of not keeping the Sabbath is that we're going to try and meet that ache for God in other ways. Last time I stood here, I spoke about worship. Without that commitment to God, God's going to slip. Something else is going to creep in and take his place. And whatever you worship that isn't God is going to utterly, utterly consume you. I'm not going to rehash the whole talk I gave last time. It's on the list with the other talks. 
Without regular recentering and orienting back to God, we're going to find something else takes its place in our hearts and will be the subject of our worship. I wonder how we feel when I say keeping the Sabbath involves worship. Some, for some, it might be that the truth is we don't really want to take a whole day where we're going to stop and we're going to rest and we're going to delight, but also worship. That might feel like a question that we don't want to look at too hard. But it's a time to deepen our surrender to God. Do we see worship as a time of a couple of songs that move us when we sing them or listen to them? Or is worship something deeper for us? Steve Nicholson, we talk about Steve a lot. He's one of the founding fathers of our movement and imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want to imitate that man as he imitates Christ because he's very special. He has a podcast and he talks about worship going up. He talks about worship as a time of giving to God. Worship as a time of surrender, of giving ourselves over and saying, do you know what, I want to fix my eye and my heart on you, Lord. Worship is a time where I want to surrender and I want to fix my eye and my heart on you, Lord. And we orient ourselves back to our first love. So when we keep the Sabbath, it's how we grow our capacity to worship. We take a step forward. We encounter God as he truly is and we order everything correctly. I don't know if you've ever misbuttoned your shirt. First button, first hole. If you miss that first hole, your shirt doesn't line up. Nothing else lines up till you unbutton it and put the first button back in the first hole and then everything else lines up. And Sabbath, and including worship in your Sabbath, worship as a response to the holiness of Sabbath is how you line up everything so it all follows as it should. Keeping the Sabbath as a space where we truly encounter God as he is, surrendering to him in a response of worship is how we order everything. And I want to talk about surrender. I don't mean resignation. Surrender isn't, oh, I'm giving up. It's not waving the white flag and then laying down and saying, I'm out. Surrender is about participation. Surrender is saying, I'm giving over to you, God, to participate with who you are and what you want in my life. God wants us to be doing and in his power. And we can't pray to receive his power if we haven't yet paused to see God in his goodness and his power. Left to its own devices, our hearts are bent. And at its core, we can so quickly lose sight of God and his beauty and his goodness. So worship is our natural response to seeing God just as he is. If we don't want to worship, if we have a hesitation to worship, is it because we've lost sight of God in his beauty? Is it because we're not re-centered and reoriented back to where we should be? Have we sort of gone a couple of degrees off course? And when that happens, not only do we not see God's full beauty... But other things become more beautiful than they should be to us. And then we're back in that cycle of it's gonna, something else is going to creep in and knock God off his spot and take his place. So this morning, as this is our last talk in the series about Sabbath, there's an invitation here that I want to underline, bold, italicize, make it bigger. And I just want to extend it. <clears throat> Sabbath is a really good time to pause and ask yourself, what do I worship? What do I orient my life around? And then to ask yourself, am I sure? Am I sure? And not just ask yourself that question, but invite God into that question. To explore those questions with God again and again and again 
and again. It's not a once and done question. The landing place at the heart of Sabbath after stopping, resting and delighting is a place of increased capacity to worship because we're encountering increased holiness. Time to be filled up with God, to see him rightly, to see ourselves rightly with him too. I said in worship, my sense was not just for me but for other people. Sometimes when we're not oriented correctly, we lose sight of the fact that we are God's precious child. When I'm caught up in the busyness and the fraughtness of life, I can know God loves me back here, but I need it here. God loves me just as much as anyone else, and God loves each person here just as much, and we can lose that. We can get lost in the busyness and the hurriness, so we need to strip away that noise of the world to see all the good God has done and all that he is and all that he's given, and then the response to that is our worship. God, what you do is good, and I am yours. Now, I haven't given any practical suggestions for worship. I know it's a bit wrong of me, isn't it, really? But what I wanted to illustrate this morning was that Sabbath is a holy time set apart, dedicated to the Lord, and when we encounter that holiness, our response is worship. Expressions of worship look different for everyone, and not only does your expression of worship look different to mine, but your expression of worship might, be, might alter according to the season that you're in. So for me, worship for me is being out in creation. That's my sacred pathway. And there's a number of walks I do again and again and again because that stacks for me. You know, It's another winter walk down this path, and I get to see the different things that God is doing in creation. And I get to look at that in the winter and the spring and the summer and the autumn. And I love just revisiting those places to see how different God's creation is in every single season. Not only that, we planted some bulbs in our front garden last autumn, October and November, and every time I leave the house, I walk over to where the pots are, and I... (laughs) Martin, those ones haven't come up yet, and he says to me, Debra, you planted those ones three weeks later. Every day I check because one of the things that draws out my worship of God is those little things go way down deep in this dark, cold dirt. And regardless of what's happening outside, come January, come February, these tough little green shoots come pushing up. And I just, for me, that's, I have to pause and think about God's goodness and God's sovereignty as my bulbs push their way through the dirt, even though it's not warm, even though they've been snowed on, even though they've been ice-bound, This winter's been a horrible one. And last week, last Sunday, my worship didn't even look like any of that. My worship looked like a giant cup of tea and a Star Wars cup and complete silence. In the busyness and the fraughtness of my life with two teenagers and unravelling a complicated estate and all that goes with that, my worship needed to be, God, I just thank you that there can be times of silence. You might not be familiar with worshipping outside of the music context in church, So I want to say to you, worship is what brings you joy, what opens you up to look heavenwards. So it might be singing, it might be painting, it might be crochet, it might be writing. It might be singing. I love singing, but I'm really bad at it. Not really bad. It's what's going to bring you joy and perspective. And I would just encourage you, practice. What's your worship? What's your response to the goodness of God? It doesn't have to look like mine. It doesn't have to look like Pete's when he's up here playing his guitar. God has equipped you to worship him in a way that is unique to you.
So we're going to draw to a close. And I want to encourage you to think about that question of what do I orient my life around? Where can I take steps to experience God so that he can imprint on me and my trust of him is going to grow? Where can I set aside time that is not everyday time, that is not common time, but holy time, sacred time, unique time dedicated to God? Where can I create a ritual or habit so that my feelings and my busyness don't take me away from God? As we prepare to respond, Jesus said it better than me in the message, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. He said, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. If you feel able to... Would you stand? <coughs> I'm going to imitate Steve Nicholson, who generally um, will wait on the Holy Spirit and see what the Holy Spirit is doing. So if you're new or this is unfamiliar, um, bear with us. As we've talked about Sabbath in the last four weeks, one of the thoughts that has recurred to me is sometimes we don't want to stop because we don't think we deserve to stop and allow God to love us. Sometimes we feel like we have to keep going to earn love. And so this morning my prayer, if that is you, is that you would be assured the Holy Spirit would assure you right now that you are loved and you deserve to stop you deserve light and worship and to stop and rest and delight and worship others it may be that uh, the rhythm of life of the world has crept in and you love the idea of Sabbath you love the life is so busy the toil is so hard that you love the idea of it but you don't know how to make the space you don't know how practically to make it work And so this morning my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would inspire you to say, this week, this is going to be the time that I set apart to be with the Lord. Just as we're standing, doing business with God, 
I just feel prompted um, to remind us that uh, there is no condemnation. If you're feeling guilty or you're giving yourself a hard time about anything we've covered in the last four weeks, I just want you to know that guilt doesn't come from God. Condemnation doesn't come from God. Shame doesn't come from God. And so my prayer is that you be able to come before God and know that you are loved, that he forgives you, that he has mercy and grace abundant for you, that you only need to turn to God and receive a fresh start in him. His mercy is new every day and his grace is sufficient for you. say it doesn't matter what's gone before what matters is that you come to come to Jesus and say Jesus I need you to be loved by God you, there are no works you can do to be loved by God and so I just I want to address maybe there's someone who feels like there are things they would need to do in order to be acceptable to God and God says I, that's, I don't need that I don't have a list of things for you to tick off for you to be acceptable to me this morning. God says, I'll take you just as you are right here, right now. So where the Holy Spirit is moving, I just encourage you to do business with God. He's a gentle man. He's not going to do anything.